Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 287 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Star Wars Episode 8 The Last Jedi. And this will include spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Rajan Khanna, making his ninth appearance on the show. He's the author of the post-apocalyptic novels Falling Sky, Rising Tide, and Raining Fire. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Lightspeed, Shimmer, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. His articles have appeared on Tor.com and LitReactor.com. So Raj, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be back. The next up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her seventh appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace, as well as the Nicholas Lenoir series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. She also writes the Villain of the Month feature over at Pornokitch.com, and her historical mystery, The Lady in the Lamppost, will be published by Minotaur Books in 2018. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. And also joining us today is Seth Dickinson, making his fifth appearance on the show. His short story, Three Bodies at Mitanni, appeared in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2016, and his first novel, The Traitor Brew Cormorant, has appeared on countless Best of 2015 reading lists. He's also studied bias in police shootings and written lore for Bungie's smash hit video game, Destiny. So, Seth, welcome to the show. Great to be here. And before we get to our panel, I need to make a third and hopefully final announcement about Patreon. So if you listened to our last episode, you'll know that Patreon had announced that they were adding new fees to every paid post, which was going to make pledging $1 or $2 per episode to Geek's Guide to the Galaxy much more expensive. As a result of that, I was encouraging listeners to modify their pledges in order to minimize the new fees. Shortly after I recorded that episode, Patreon announced that due to the massive backlash, they had changed their minds and would not be adding the new fees after all. So it's no longer necessary to modify your pledge. For the time being, Patreon will continue to work the way it always has, with no additional fees. If you already went ahead and modified your pledge, that's fine. It works either way. You can learn more details about all this by going to patreon.com geeks and clicking on posts. But the short version is that nothing is changing with Patreon after all, and you don't have to worry about modifying your pledge. I want to give a big thank you to everyone who stuck with us through this whole fiasco. And as I said, hopefully this will be the last message about Patreon that I have to record for a while. All right, and so now let's get to our panel. Okay, so this movie, The Last Jedi, is a direct sequel to Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, which we discussed back in Episode 183. And so if you want to know in a lot of detail what Raj and I thought of that movie, you can go listen to that. But Seth and Aaron weren't there for that panel, so I'm just kind of curious what they thought of The Force Awakens. So Aaron, let's start with you and have you, just tell us, uh, what did you think of the previous movie, The Force Awakens? Yeah, I really liked it. Um, I think it was sort of exactly what the franchise needed for a reboot. I I think like a lot of people, I was nervous going into that movie, um, having been disappointed so many times before. But, um, but I think, yeah, it really, it really was good. I mean, to me, um, I mean, as I'm sure everybody has said, it was kind of a beat for beat um, rehashing of a lot of the same major plot points as, as the original but for me, that wasn't a bad thing and was maybe exactly what was required at the time. Um, and yeah, I really I really liked it. How about Seth? What did you think of The Force Awakens? I liked it a lot, too. I thought it was basically uh, a Trojan horse where superficially it's a remake of A New Hope. But it was really just a delivery vehicle 
for these new characters. And what was great about it was it hit the same plot beats as A New Hope, but it was really about a new generation who'd grown up like loving Star Wars, even in, in the Star Wars universe, and how they dealt differently with those events. Because if you listen to our panel, I guess you guys didn't listen to our panel, but if, if people out there listen to our panel on The Force Awakens, they'll know that Raj liked The Force Awakens pretty well, I think. is that That's, that's fair, right, Raj? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that I, I really, really disliked it. Um, and I felt like it was like 100% fan service and like 0% artistic vision. And just the whole tone of it I thought was goofy. Uh, so I was really, really frustrated with it. But it's been two it is years. It's a frustrating movie. It's been two years. I'm kind of, I'm calm. I've calmed down I'm calm, I'm <laughs> a little bit. But, um, but neither of you guys, do you guys, uh, Seth and uh, Aaron, do either of you get what I'm saying? That the movie, it was just like a lot of references and it just felt like it was like, it just constantly reminded you that you're watching a Star Wars movie and didn't feel like an actual real, like a story that was really happening. I think to some extent, I mean, I certainly understand where you're coming from as somebody, um, you know, from, from the generation that grew up with the original Star Wars. I think to be fair, though, to everyone concerned, um, they, they had to square the circle in terms of appealing to both the old uh, existing fandom. We're not old, the existing fandom <laughs> and and bringing in a new generation or new generations, plural of of viewers who maybe are one well, obviously aware of star Wars, but maybe not um, as familiar with the sort of blow by blow um, script that, that we, that we were familiar with that we grew up with. And so I, I think they did a pretty good job of that. I can sort of under, I mean, I can certainly understand how it comes off as a bit of a greatest hits package. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll talk about that some more in the podcast, but um but I do think to some extent that that would be necessary. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so, uh, all right. So now we know what everyone thought of Force Awakens. So how about Raj, why don't you start us off and tell us what were your initial reactions to The Last Jedi? Yeah, so I think I was perhaps, I, I kind of was one of those people who had high expectations just based on the writer-director on this one because I've, you know, uh, it's Ryan Johnson, right? That's how you yeah. pronounce his name? Okay. Some people say Rion, I say Ryan. Um, but I really like Brick, you know, I really liked Looper. So I was, I had high hopes for this person coming into the Star Wars universe. I liked the movie. Um, I can't really say that I loved it, I guess. And I recently rewatched all of the movies from Rogue One chronologically forward. And on seeing Force Awakens again, um, I felt like Force Awakens is a better, like, cohesive movie, but my feeling about The Last Jedi was that there were parts that I liked a lot more than Force Awakens, but there were also parts that I liked less, and it felt too long and disjointed. Um, so I enjoyed it, but I, I guess I wanted a little bit more from it. How about Seth? What did you think of The Last Jedi? I was really uncomfortable with it watching it. Uh, not uncomfortable like it creeped me out or anything, but it was different. It was doing weird things, uh, and you know different things are bad. <laughs> so. But the more I thought about it after watching it, the more I liked it. And that was the opposite of the experience I had with Rogue One and Force Awakens, where Force Awakens is basically valuable because it's a remake of Star Wars where the characters know they're in Star Wars. They love Star Wars. And what's interesting about it is seeing different people. You know, Rey is like 
Luke if Luke did not have any special heritage. Um, Finn is is Han, well, I guess Poe's Han, but Finn is like Han in that he wants to get away from the fight, but he's a stormtrooper, he's a child soldier. And those characters were the heart of the movie. The Last Jedi, I think, opened up uh, a much bigger can of Sarlax <laughs> for us to talk about. So it's uncomfortable, but rewarding. And Force Awakens is comfortable, but kind of numbing. Interesting. How about Aaron? Um, yeah, I liked it. I, I, I liked it a lot. That being said, I, I agree with the criticisms Roz just made. Um, I think it suffers a little bit from uh, from second book syndrome, particularly in, in epic series, where um, I think that the, the story arc was a little too ambitious. Um, having those sort of three and a half separate story arcs made it quite disjointed, and, and each of them had sort of sagging points in their own right. And so I think that was part of the problem is that that the, the sum of the parts didn't quite work um, as well as say it did in Empire Strikes Back, which also has split narratives, but not as split and not as much cutting back and forth between them. Um, that I mean, I say that <laughs> I haven't actually um, sort of counted the back and forths, obviously, but it feels like it, it felt in this movie, I agree, it was at least half an hour too long. And it felt like there was a lot of jumping back and forth. But I did really like it. I certainly didn't like, well, I liked it uh, not quite as well as The Force Awakens. I liked it a lot better than Rogue One. Um, and I think it solves a lot of the problems, not solved, but addressed some of the problems um, that I had with Rogue One. But it also, I think, answered some of the, um, what's the word I want to use? Some of the worries that I had at the end of Force Awakens about how are they going to handle this? How are they going to handle that? And there are, there are sort of very Disney blockbuster mis missteps that would be easy to make with some of these narrative threads that they've started in The Force Awakens. And although some of them still haven't been addressed, those that were addressed in this movie were by and large addressed in a way that quelled some of those fears that I had. So yeah, I really, I liked it overall. It wasn't perfect, but I did like it. I mean, it's interesting because I was going into this with pretty low expectations because I didn't like The Force Awakens so much. And I have to say, I love this movie. I uh, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I was mesmerized for the entire running time. And uh, maybe it's just because I saw it yesterday and I'm just like crazy. And if you ask me again in a year, I will have calmed down or whatever. But this is like arguably my favorite Star Wars movie at this point. Really? Yeah. And well, I, I will say... That. I will say it's because it is, it has the most, to my mind, moral complexity of any of the movies. It uh, is has the most surprises of any of the movies. Uh, and it's just like the most, to my mind, sort of intellectual and self-aware and kind of like gives you the most to think about afterward. And mm. I just, I don't know. I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um so, I agree with everything you just said, and yet it strikes me that your complaint about the first movie is is still valid for the second movie, don't you think? I.e. I. that there's so much repackaging of previously existing material. I don't know. It didn't bother me in this one. I feel like it was because the tone, I think, was different. Like, the tone to me in this one wasn't goofy. It was the stakes felt a lot more real, and, uh, you know, the the victories felt like they came at a much higher cost, and the bad guys were a lot more effectual a lot of the times and see i felt 
I felt this one started off way more goofy than I was expecting. And, you know, from there on, it kind of settled into a groove. But that whole opening sequence with Poe, you know, like basically trolling Hux on his ship, um, that felt a little over the top to me and felt like a weird tone to start the movie off on. Um, You know, I'm not like anti-jokey or fun because that's always been part of the Star Wars universe, but that felt a little bit uh, too much to me from the beginning, but then it seemed to kind of like quiet down as we went along. See, I, I agree that that opening thing with, uh, uh, Poe trolling Hux was, it was kind of like skirting the line, but I mean, to me, it was very much like the Han Solo on the Death Star, like, oh, we've got a, you know, breach here, very dangerous, give us time to lock it down, boring conversation anyway. It was that kind of thing. So, and I feel like, yeah, it was sort of skirting the edge, but then it, shifts into this, you know, the bombers are all getting blown up and there's this just heart-rending scene of the woman kicking the uh, frame to try to get the button to fall down to her and stuff. And then she explodes in a giant fireball and uh, all that. Because my big problem, as I've said in previous episodes with a lot of the Star Wars things, is that none of the good guys, they, they have these big attacks and none of the good guys die. Um, in the good movies, they do. Like in, um, you know, the battle on Hoth and Empire Strikes Back, there's just rebels dying left and right. And that makes it feel real. Um, and so this did sort of the same thing, whereas a lot of the other things like the Ewok battle or the fucking, um, Jar Jar Binks <laughs> army battle is just, just like, there aren't enough good guys dying and it just doesn't feel like war. It feels like a stupid cartoon. Um, but, but speaking of stupid cartoon, is there, is there a more cartoonish villain in the, in the history of Star Wars than Bill Weasley? <laughs> I mean, seriously, Hux, I mean, I, I get, I think he's supposed to be over the top, but, but Jesus. Yeah, he's not my favorite. I thought, I mean, he's the comic relief in this movie and, uh, you know, he plays, you know, I mean, cause I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> that's, that's legitimate. I just, you know, didn't bother me. That much. <laughs> well, I think he fits into a pattern, uh, which is what uh, Dave, you and Roger are kind of talking about with the beginning of this movie where the reason it feels goofy is the characters are all aware of what movie they're on not literally they don't it's not a deadpool thing but uh the captain of the first order dreadnought as soon as that x-wing comes at him he knows this x-wing is going to shoot all the guns off his ship and blow him up he's totally aware every time something happens in that action sequence poe pulls off some ridiculous stunt uh the captain of that dreadnought is like oh of course and his last expression when his ship gets blown up it's just this like grumpy frustration that this has happened again. The rebellion has sent a single fighter at their massive super weapon and blown it up. Uh, and I think that kind of self-awareness is what can feel so goofy about it. Um, that the characters all kind of know how these things go, but then the movie starts playing with it. Uh, you know, you get into the second act and Poe knows that he and Finn and uh, Rose have to come up with a crazy plan that's going to save the day in spite of their stupid obstructionist commanders. And Ray knows she has to go get trained by the great last Jedi. And she has to go confront uh, Kylo Ren to turn him back to the light side. Cause these are the stories that star Wars tells. But I think one of the reasons people complain this movie is full of things that don't mean anything is because it actually spends a lot of time showing us star Wars stuff and then saying, hang on a second. This is, this is a different story. That's not what that actually means. Yeah. And that's kind of a blessing and a curse, isn't it? Like for me, at some points, this movie felt like somebody had taken the script for Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, torn it up into a bunch of little pieces, thrown it all up in the air, 
and then put the pieces back together in random order. Um, and that's both a good thing and a bad thing because you can again nod your head to the beat. Um, the good thing is that you can nod your head to the beat, but there are still lots of surprises and fresh twists. So it does kind of lull you into this. You think you know where this is going, and then it's quite satisfying when it goes in a different direction than you thought it would. But it does sometimes lend it that disjointed feel, and it also does sometimes feel like some of those story threads, and there's one in particular I'm thinking of, when you sort of look at it with hindsight, you think, well, what did that amount to in the end? And like is the that casino? Well, that whole, the casino is part of it. I, I personally think that Finn's whole story arc was too much side quest that didn't amount to a hill of beans in the end. Right. But that's the point is that they, they go off on this. They, they, they undertake, as Seth was saying, this like crazy mission. And every movie you've ever seen has taught you to expect that this is how they're going to save the day, that they're going to disobey orders and they're going to ignore the experts and the facts and they're just going to go with their gut and they're going, they're going to do something crazy and it's going to save the day. And then everyone's going to forgive them and say like, Oh, you guys, you were so right. You should, you should never listen to the experts. You should just do whatever charismatic people think in the moment in their impulses seems good. And then it, it totally does the opposite of that. It's like, no, they, they did all this stuff that they always do in movies and it turned out much more realistically. It was a gigantic fuck up because that's what happens when people don't listen to the people who know what they're talking about. I hear you. And that's great. But the problem is that they already fired that bullet. That whole opening scene with Poe, that's precisely the point of it. And in case you missed it, Leia gives him the, the lecture about exactly what that scene was about. And so I feel like that if that was the point of that sequence with Finn, it would have had a lot more impact had they not already in fairly heavy handed fashion driven that point home in a much shorter and more concise way. See, but I don't think the initial thing was driving that had made that point. I think that was setting up that the dynamic between the characters. And then you still expect it. No, he's going to like do it his way and he's going to show them that they were wrong. I mean, that's what every move happens in every movie. Like the character like screws up in the opening sequence and then does goes back and does the exact same thing and saves the day in the actual movie. (laughs) (laughs) Am am I wrong about that? No, you're right. I think it's a very Pixar structure where the opening kind of shows the character's crisis and then the movie deals with, you know, how they learn about it and change for Poe at least. Right. I mean, so Aaron, you were, I mean, what did you think about the fact that you had these female characters like Leia and um, uh, Holdo, Vice Admiral Amlin Holdo? I thought that was really interesting. Um, And has a lot of contemporary relevance. Do you not agree um, with that? No, no, I, I do. I do agree with it. One of the things that I think this film did really well in comparison to some previous ones. I mean, the big, the big, uh, one of the big problems that I had, I had many big problems with Rogue One was the fact that you like kudos to you and take your bows for, for casting a female hero, but nobody else in the movie is female. So one of the things that they, they have done, um, I think wrong in the past and, and other films do is even where you, where you put a, a strong female protagonist or even several of them on the front lines in those lead roles, none of the supporting roles or the, or the tertiary roles, the bit parts and the extras, there aren't enough women to justify that. 
So if that's a part of your world building, if the, if the gender of these of your heroes is exceptional, then that's fine, but it needs to come across as exceptional. Um, and so that that's always been a, a bit of a tension that I don't think that they've handled very well. And in this film, they, I felt like they really got the memo that not only do they have women in leadership roles, but they also have women in the random, you know, fighter pilot mechanic, whatever role. Um, they're they're showing up as not being exceptional in all of these other roles, and I like that. Obviously, Leia was completely badass and awesome in this movie. Laura Dern's character fell flat for me. I didn't like it at all. Um, she she just I I didn't understand the choices that character made. I didn't understand whether we were supposed to root for her or not root for her, which is maybe okay on its face. But um, but I did like you know that. Obviously, um, you have more than one uh, woman in a military leadership role. It's nice to see. I really liked Holdo. And one reason I liked her was her costuming. Uh, I liked that you got this character who was a take charge, no shit military leader who had this very femme kind of aesthetic. And this will sound really corny, but given that the movie ended on like a kid looking at the stars, thinking about being in Star Wars, it just made me happy that Holdo gave all these little like femme kids wearing dresses who like pink stuff, somebody to, to want to be in star Wars. Uh, I thought the one misstep with her character was at some point, she just should have said to Poe, we don't know how these guys are tracking us. There could be spies on the ship. So I can't explain my plan to you. And if she'd said that, I think she's flawless. Yeah. I think that's a totally legit, legit point. But speaking of her appearance, I mean, I think the purple hair was kind of hmm. brilliant because I think that at some level, what this script is doing is it's sort of in a meta conversation with the like weird asshole fan, Star Wars fans who don't want Star Wars to change and like hate every, hate all sorts of things. And one of the sort of bugbears of those sorts of people is the like feminists with their purple hair and they're like, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> is that a thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The purple <laughs> oh, hair. Shit. Oh, yeah. I'm completely <laughs> unaware of this. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so the movie plays with that in a really interesting way where it like it sets up these female leaders and then again according to all conventional hollywood logic the the and and Laura Dern basically even says this i mean she says uh you know oh, the flyboy guy is going to just use his like seat of his pants charisma don't tell me the odds kind of stuff and save the day and then it seems like that's how it's going to play out and then it doesn't and it keeps just keeps just reversing that but the way it all in a way that really keeps you guessing legitimately, I thought, but then the way it ultimately plays out is, yeah, these these women uh, who use opinions you were discounting automatically really did have a really did kind of know what they were doing. And you really kind of fucked everything up by uh, you know, disregarding their legitimate authority. Yeah. And I really did like that. And I really did like that, that the various that the, the different approaches that those two um, sides of the conversation we're having where you had Leia and um, uh, Laura Dern's character. Sorry, I've forgotten her name again. Aldo. Aldo, thank you. Um, their their approach was to preserve, whereas Poe's approach arguably was to win. And he was thinking about the battle and defeating the bad guys and winning and blowing things up. And they're saying, well, that that doesn't amount to anything if you don't preserve if you don't preserve life, if you don't preserve the rebellion, if it can't continue past the thing you blew up in the battle that you won, then who cares? And uh, right on that Poe and Finn, their arcs are 
pretty connected. They kind of go through the same arc, uh, even though they don't share a lot of screen time. Right at the end, uh, Finn does exactly what you're saying. Finn goes on this suicide trench run to blow up the uh, the dark saber thing, the laser artillery that's going to take out the door. Um, and Rose rams his speeder and stops him from completing his suicide run. And, uh, you know, she says, we're going to win by protecting the people we love. And it wasn't until after that sequence that I thought through it and realized she was not only like philosophically correct, but tactically also very correct. If he'd rammed that thing and destroyed it, it, it wouldn't have made a difference. There was no help coming. The First Order would have gotten through those base doors anyway, and everyone would have been killed. Uh, Finn was thinking kind of locally, like Poe does. Like, I have to take out the big Death Star thing, and then somehow we'll win. And Rose was the one who said, "You like you said, uh, you, you've got to preserve what the strength you have for another day. And is it a coincidence that it's the female characters in, in both of those scenes that are in the preserve camp and the male characters that are in the blow it up camp? I, I, if it's a if it's a coincidence, there's definitely got to be some consciousness in the back of someone's mind about that. It's I, mean, I don't think it is coincidence. Oh, go ahead, Raj. No, I was just thinking as you guys were talking about how, you know, looking at Leia and looking at Luke, you know, Leia is the better, you know, master, I guess you not master in the sense of, you know, command, but like Luke, you know, tried to instruct a generation of Jedi and obviously failed and went off to go hide. Whereas Haldo is, is a, you know, definitive example of how Leia has passed on her leadership and her skills to the next generation, which has helped to, you know, which in this movie helps to accomplish something real, um, which I think is actually an interesting um, juxtaposition there. Yeah, I don't think it's in any way a coincidence that all the male characters in this movie are making pig-headed, reckless decisions, and all the female characters are trying to rein them in and be wise and prudent. And I think that's a very deliberate choice that the movie is making that, as I said, I think has uh, a lot of relevance to the con contemporary events and has, you know, elicited a, a lot of like outrage um, on the Internet. We just all saw this movie yesterday, I think. So I don't know how much time you guys had to read up on reactions to it. But, I've tried not to personally. Yeah. But but I mean, I, th I think that's a very deliberate statement the movie is making. And I don't want every movie to make that statement up, but I think it was fascinating for this movie to do, to do mm. that. Uh, hey, I actually want to push back at that just a little, uh, just because I think it's kind of tired and, and frustrating for movies to say things like, you know, the men are like this and the women are like this. And I don't think yeah. The Last Jedi quite does that. I think the women leaders are definitely better at making calls than the hot-headed men under them. But Ray is... Um, Ray makes a lot of impulsive mistakes out of her belief that she can fix Kylo Ren uh, and that she can bring him back. And I think there's more going on to the female characters in this movie than just like they have superior wisdom and they're correct. Um, there's something there about knowing the worth of other people and how Ray fucks up by figuring she's really in touch with Kylo Ren's feelings and if she can just bring this hot but kind of troubled boy back to the light side, then everything will be okay. She can fix him. Uh, so to me, that was a female character getting to do something different than, than Leia and Holdo. Different, but still pretty tropey in its right. 
I mean, particularly if you're looking at it from a romance angle, which I'm not sure if we are or not. I, I found that confusing, but maybe you were supposed to find it confusing. Um, I know people are shipping those two, which I find perplexing. But anyway, um, the the whole sort of saving the troubled boy um, and because she's she's good and, and he's troubled is in its in its own right. If you wanted to look at it from from that angle a fairly stereotypical approach as well. So even though it's different, it could be argued that it's stereotypical. I, I didn't take it that way myself. Um, I think it's a valid interpretation. It's not one I had, but it is one interpretation. I think it's just as stereotypical as Poe's desire to go get in an X-wing and save the day by shooting stuff. And Ray is as wrong as Poe by the end of the movie. You're right. She does make this archetypical bring back the bad boy choice but like poe she's wrong and she has to learn from someone wiser than her that it's not how it always works and she ends the movie by you know smashing that door in his face yeah uh, metaphysically yeah but does i would be curious to to hear from others whether they felt that that ray adequately like did she she explain or did was it adequately explained why she felt this need to save kylo ren when she ended the previous movie hating him? Uh, Raj, what do you think about that? Dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think the movie says that that she, when she has that connection with him, that she feels the light inside of him, and maybe that's what kind of gives her that idea. But I do think what my take from it was, was that she knows the stories of Luke and Vader and how that all went. And she, you know, has this desire to become more than what she is. And so I think they kind of merged together, you know, with her trying to step into that role, the Luke role and, you know, bringing him back to the light side. Um, And if Luke's not going to help her, then maybe, you know, this is her way of contributing. But um, I mean, it happens very quickly. I, I think, I think I'm okay with it because, you know, when they, they explain this kind of connect or they don't explain, but when they show the connection, um, it feels like there's a lot more going on that we're not seeing. Uh, I really like the way that they they did it because it was very unsettling to see them talking to each other in two very different environments. Uh, and I felt like it was a really interesting um, way to, to have them communicate that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think Rajan 80% nailed your question, Aaron. Uh, Ray actually name checks the, the stories of, the legends of Luke going and redeeming Vader. Um, but Luke, Luke, the guy who insisted right to the end, to the point of throwing down his own weapon, that there was goodness in his father is also the guy who like looked at a sleeping Kylo Ren and was briefly tempted to just murder this kid. Um, and there's this whole thing going in this movie about misinterpreted visions of the future. And I think the other 20% of Ray's mistake there, what motivated her to feel like she could bring Kylo Ren back uh, in spite of, you know, Han being murdered in front of her was that she was being gaslighted by Supreme Leader Snoke. Snoke forged that whole telepathic bond. Snoke was sending her these fake visions of Kylo Ren being turned back to the light. And that was what I think drove, that was actually what drove Ray's decision to go back to the supremacy and try to turn right. Well, well, but we uh, see that right. in the scene where Kylo can't take the shot at Leia, that he is genuinely conflicted. And so there is some legitimate, um, you know, conflict within him. And yeah, it, it certainly seems to me it's, it's, it's as 
reasonable to think that he could be turned as that Darth Vader could be turned after everything Darth Vader had done uh, by the time Return of the Jedi comes around. But I'm glad that he wasn't. And and I mean, this is like, this is a, a quibble fundamentally, the question that I'm asking. I would have liked to see a little bit more justification for, for why Rey, even if it was just a question of showing us the vision that she had of Kylo Ren um, surrendering to the light side, I think that would have helped us sort of buy into it a little bit more. Um, I also wondered if maybe there was an element of doing it for Han, um, doing it for Han and Leia one one last mm. try to to bring their son back to the light. I think that could have been interesting. But um, the the moment in the movie that made me most uncomfortable, even as I really enjoyed it, was that moment uh, where where they have the 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 coming together. And they're fighting on the same side. And I remember thinking to myself, am I supposed to root for this guy now? Yeah. Is this going to be that kind of redemption arc? Because I can't get on board with it. Um, and I'm really, really glad they didn't go that way. Because that was one of the things that I was fearing from from The Force Awakens was that A, we were supposed to ship these two. And B, we were supposed to root for Kylo Ren and, and Ben Solo in the end. And I was like, there's just no way I'm going to be able to get on board with that. Do you guys think uh, that Kylo Ren is more interesting, is irredeemably fucked up? Like, the potential is in him for good, but he's never going to get there? Because that seemed to me to be the takeaway from this movie, and I liked it a lot. But Yeah, I prefer that. He's he's the, and, and credit, I think some credit for, for sure needs to go to Adam Driver, but he, he's the Anakin Skywalker we deserved. Yeah. <laughs> because his angst feels real. As much as you sometimes want to smack him around for being a sulky teenager, especially in the first one, in the second one, I, I thought he he did have uh, more charisma and, and his his darkness and his conflict feels more real. Yeah, and I, I want to think. S- yeah, let me, let me say something. I think that Kylo Ren is just absolutely fascinating villain in this because to go back to my earlier point because he's kind of like the obsessive star wars fan where he's just like obsessed with darth vader and he just wants to be darth vader and i thought the thing that was so brilliant in this movie is the thing that so many people are upset are so upset about where you know he's like i know who your parents are they're nobody and i'm the skywalker here this is my movie and i'll let you know like don't get me wrong i'll let you be in my movie you can join me here but you're nobody. This is about me. And he has that same sort of proprietary, uh, possessive attitude toward the Skywalker legacy and everything that comes with it that the Star Wars fans have toward Star Wars. That it's like, this is my thing. I'm the real Skywalker here. And like these other people like don't deserve it the way I deserve it. And I thought it was just playing with that idea in such a, such a freaking really interesting way. Yeah, I think the key difference between Kylo Ren and Darth Vader and the reason Vader could be redeemed is that Vader is a dad who lost his children and eventually regrets that and turns back out of love for his son. Kylo Ren is a kid who hates his parents. He has nothing ahead of him that he loves or behind him that he wants to protect. He has nobody he wants to raise. He just wants to destroy what came before him. And he doesn't care about what's next except himself. And and you believe you believe his rage too. And again, maybe it's just a performance thing, but I absolutely loved the scene at the end where he's completely unreasonable about destroying Luke Skywalker and, you know, screaming for them to shoot all the guns at him. And that, that rage felt really genuine. And you can sort of, you do wonder where it comes from. 
Like, no, I, I want to know concerns, why these guys weren't parents were of the year. Completely legitimate. I would have been saying the same thing. Like, shoot that dude with everything we have, you know. Sure, but maybe you would have been doing it in a cool, calculated <laughs> way, as opposed to a spittle <laughs> flying, nostrils flared sort of way. Yeah. Uh, See, so Raj, do you have anything you want to add? I don't know. I mean, I think I, I like Kylo a lot. I thought he was great in this um, in this movie. I thought his, you know, people were talking a lot about how there's, you know, so many metatextual things going on in this movie. You mentioned, you know, in the, in, he's, in the start, he's like a Star Wars fan. Um, but by the time, you know, he's killed Snoke, you know, he says we have to destroy the past, you know, disconnect ourselves from it. And I think that's kind of the mission statement of this movie or where they're moving the universe, which is basically like, we're moving it away from, you know, we gave you the movie where everything was rooted in everything, you know, and then here's where we start to pull away from that. So, you know, we've, we've lost two of the original three people. I'm pretty sure we're going to lose the third, um, just based on reality. And so, you know, they're setting up a world, I think more removed from the touchstones that we know for star Wars, which is, I think why it's starting to feel a little bit weird to some people or not quite the same. And, you know, Ryan Johnson is doing a, another trilogy that's unconnected to everything that we've seen. So I feel like this is like deeply behind this movie in that they're, they're starting a new start here, but they're trying to wrap up the, the loose ends of the old one. Right. Cause that was something that was so frustrating to me about the force awakens was we had watched this whole saga about the rebellion overthrowing the empire. And then you go into the next movie and all that just got re revert, like rewound. And it's like, Oh, everything is exactly the same. Now there's the empire again. And then there's the small group of rebels fighting it. And so, so, and, uh, and so to see like actual changes being made, like this, to see the story progressing, into the future and new things happening uh i thought was really good satisfying yeah i mean just from a from a realistic perspective um the, the fact that everything seemed to go back to the beginning in the force awakens is sadly very close to reality uh it's it's a it's a rare rebellion that overthrows the empire and democracy reigns from then on in um you know m- most of those events are are, are followed by other events that are almost exactly the same. Well, um, well, right. So I didn't have a problem with that, but hang on. What I was going to say is just to go back to something Raj said a second ago, what I really liked about this, I think the central flaw of the movie for me was that it was trying to do much, as I meant, mentioned before, trying, trying to do too much. And so it was too long and a bit disjointed, but to the extent that they packed all the main parts of return of the Jedi and empire strikes back into one movie it makes me really excited for the next installment because it means there are none of those in principle anyway. All of that's been done. We've ticked all those boxes and now we are complete tabula rasa. And that's interesting because I don't think J.J. Abrams has ever done an ending before. Um, he starts projects. <laughs> that's his thing. He started Alias. He started Lost. Uh, he started the Star Trek reboots. He started the Star Wars reboots. But I, I don't remember him ever directing anything that was a conclusion so i'm interested where he goes well yeah i mean just my my impression of jj abrams at this point and this might be completely unfair i don't like know him or anything but my impression is that he he loves movies and he knows everything there is to know about movies and doesn't have a lot to say and i feel like ryan johnson has things to say and i feel like in the next i'm afraid that i i feel like this this trilogy could very easily mirror the first trilogy where you have like the crowd pleasing 
first movie, and then you have like the dark, kind of weird second movie that people only in retrospect recognize was the most interesting one, and then you have kind of the a third kind of mindless crowd pleasing one again. And I'm really, I'm sort of expecting that J.J. Abrams is going to come in in the next movie, and it's going to like, yeah, it's just going to be like fun, and it's going to like the good guys are going to win. And oh no, fun and the good guys win. That sucks. <laughs> well, what I'm afraid they'll backpedal on. Uh, you were talking about seeing the story advancing forward. What I could not believe they did in this movie and what I wanted another hour of was actually exploring the force and what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was this sort of David Lynchian scene where Ray goes down to this dark side hole and like encounters a mirror that turns her into this sort of causal string of herself in the past and the future. I wanted so much more of that. I thought that scene was fantastic. It was unsettling. It wasn't a pastiche of any other mystical vision. Um, I I wanted Ray to have three more of those scenes. Uh, and I'm afraid going forward, we're not going to get more of that. This was, I think, the first Star Wars movie, maybe since Empire, where we actually developed more of an understanding of the Force. And it was all through Luke, through Luke saying, the Jedi were terrible. And... Uh, Here's why. And I think the movie, without explicitly saying it, uh, actually laid out sort of a master theory of how the Force works in Star Wars and why these, um, why the Jedi were doomed, why these Sith and evil dark side users keep popping up, and why every well-meaning, enlightened Jedi master ends up hiding. Uh, and I loved that so much. I thought it was a great, a great thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Like that too. I like that too. And this was the, the the best Luke Skywalker of all the Luke Skywalkers. I could just watch him all day. <laughs> I thought he was milking, great. Milking his sirens. The, those things were just so nasty. It was great. <laughs> and, and I also loved that. I mean, I don't know if they meant to do this, but if you were kind of missing the Han Solo, the curmudgeonly wry Han Solo in this movie, um, you know, I, I was afraid that that role would be completely vacant, but it turns out Luke stepped into it quite admirably. Right. And so I, I don't know if you're following all the internet uh, shitstorm, but people are very upset about uh, Luke Skywalker in this movie. And I, 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 I'm with you. I thought it was really, really interesting. And I, I, was, I, I sort of got over all my anger about it in the last movie because I was saying in our last panel, everything we know about Luke Skywalker is he's not the kind of person who would disappear you know disappear and just leave his friends to face their fate without his help um but if you if you've accepted that um as i have and th that that happened in the last movie i'm not upset about it anymore like the, the, the thing they had to justify is like what could have ha possibly happened that would in any rational way make him keep to that decision and i thought they did a pretty good job of revealing events that had happened that made that at least somewhat plausible. They did. And I, I think I, as, as conflicted as I am about the, the moment that he has with Ben Solo that, that arguably created Kylo Ren, uh, as much as you wish Luke hadn't done that, and as much as the, the golden boy that we all thought of Luke as um, in, in the first trilogy would never do such a thing, it's also very human and very believable that he has this moment of terror um, with this moment of insight and terror and weakness and strength all bound into one. 
and he has just just a moment of of total conflict and he eventually overcomes it in the way that that he should have but i think it's too much or too trite to expect that that somebody like luke would never have even a moment like that i think it's very human and very believable and speaks to his own fears and the fears that he carries over from obi-wan kenobi because you know he's he knows better than anybody what what happens when it all goes wrong um, and yeah. he remembers what happened to his master when it all went wrong. And and for him to have that moment of terror, as much as I don't like it, it felt right. And to jump on that, uh, Luke is not only the one, Luke is the only character in this entire movie who mentions the prequels. Um, he's the one who talks about Darth Sidious, Palpatine taking over. And I think Luke's actions in this movie and in the however many years before since Return of the Jedi are not only good dramatic decisions, they're the only thing Star Wars could have done after making the prequels. Because we saw the original trilogy where Luke uh, redeems his father and corrects the mistakes made in the prequels. We see the prequels where the Jedi confront evil with force of arms and they utterly fail. Uh, the end of Revenge of the Sith is every single remaining Jedi Master either losing or failing uh, failing in their battle against evil. Anakin falls, uh, Obi-Wan chops up Anakin, but he just turns into Darth Vader. Yoda can't kill Sidious. And they all retreat into exile. And after three movies of the Jedi leading armies and talking about politics in council rooms, like, is the Supreme Chancellor overreaching his emergency powers? <laughs> uh, how can you have Luke after Return of the Jedi say, what I should do is train a new Jedi Order, install them in cushy buildings in the capital, and have them be space cops. It totally failed. It led to the Galactic Empire. Uh, they can't do that again. They couldn't have Luke create a new Jedi Order, because then you're doing the prequels. And I think what Luke realized, his revelation that this movie never says out loud, um, but which it really implies, is that if you're actually interested in understanding the Force, if you are really going to sit down and meditate and try to, I don't know, reach a transcendent union with the world around you rather than caring about trade disputes and how many votes the Supreme Chancellor has. Um, you eventually come to a position, and this reminded me of the later Earthsea books, where actually taking direct action in the world, like walking out there and killing Kylo Ren with your lightsaber or destroying his armies, which is what the fans wanted, is unthinkable. Uh, you understand the cosmos so well that you're no longer capable of just going out there and using your ego to change it the way you want. I think Luke realized that there are very, very many bad ways to use the force. Um, one of them is you become a dark sider who wants to take over the galaxy. Uh, and another one is you just get enough force knowledge to wave your sword around and kill people who don't have the force. And you set yourself up as this monastic order of space cops who, rather than trying to understand the universe or achieve enlightenment, um, just becomes a tool of the state. And Luke realized the Jedi Order was basically uh, these nebbish, uh, purposefully self-deceiving bureaucrats who refused to take the next necessary step in studying the Force, which was to leave the world and go off on your own and do nothing. Um, and I think that's why Luke is unwilling to act directly. Even at the end of the movie, he will not fight Kylo Ren. He will only talk to him and allow Kylo's rage to distract him and lead him astray. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Seth. And I mean, one thing that I think that the movie was doing is that one of the most problematic aspects of Star Wars has always been the extent to which the Jedi is kind of like a um, genetically ordained aristocracy of superpowered individuals. And it seems like the this was trying to push more in the direction of like the forces for everybody. You know, Rey is nobody and she's as much with the force as anyone that um, a sort of like democratizing of the force. Um, and Maybe. I, I thought that was. Yeah. Hopefully that that's another one of the decisions that, uh, that I think I, and a lot of people worried about at the end of the force awakens was, is, is Ray going to turn out to be a closet Skywalker? Is it mm. going to continue this idea of a chosen one bloodline? They, they seem not to have gone that route. Um, they could walk it back. I hope they don't. Um, yeah. But but I guess it's 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 certainly possible it, that that Kylo Ren maybe lies from time to time, and that's kind of the only evidence we have of that. So I, I do hope that that's true. Um, but well, to, just to go back to what Seth was saying a moment ago, though, I think the the one quibble that I would have is that it's hard to imagine. Everything you're saying about about Luke's motivations and his understandings make good sense. It's hard to imagine, though, how he envisages leaving uh, Supreme Leader Snoke and Kylo Ren in charge of the galaxy um, speaks to that vision. It would make more sense to me if, if he were to sort of return to the state of affairs immediately after Return of the Jedi, where, okay, evil has been decapitated. And that's when you go off into the night because his real mistake was starting that Jedi Academy that started Kylo Ren. Right. Yeah. Anyway. No, I, I, I think that, well, first of all, I do think I agree with the democratization of the force uh, idea because at the end, I don't know if you guys caught it. It was very subtle, but the, the young stable boy reaches out for his broom and it goes to his hand without him actually grabbing it. Um, and so I took that to mean that we're already seeing the force kind of pop up in these nobodies, you know, in, in people in random places. And, you know, it's not explicitly stated, but I had a problem at first. I was thinking, like, why didn't Luke just take care of his own messes in a way? And I'm I'm kind of now on the side where I think he went away knowing that the force would respond itself, you know, maybe not immediately, but that somebody else would come up in the force and, you know, that the balance would be maintained uh, without him imposing his own ego, you know, the way that Seth was talking about and, 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 and trying to force things in a certain way, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> so that's where I, I've landed now. And I actually really like that idea, too. And I, I, I hope I agree. I hope that Ray is, you know, stays a nobody because I really like that idea. And I really like the idea of moving away from this you know, like you said, aristocratic kind of bloodline, old fashioned thing. And right now, Kylo is the only example of that. Um, we also don't know where Snoke came from. And I'm kind of a little bummed yeah. about that just because, yeah. you know, uh, how, why, you know, the emperor, what's going on. But um, and I don't know, it seemed like an odd thing to to kind of hint at him in the first movie, show him in this one, but then just kind of be like, OK, now he's done. And I, you know, some people have said maybe they'll explain more in the third movie, but I almost feel like they've tied off that that bow. So, like, why would they go back to it? I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, that, I agree. Well, well, this is one of the, I think, one of the legitimate gripes I do have about the movie is that, I mean, I don't know that they have to say where Snoke came from. I mean, they never really say where the Emperor comes from in the 
other movies before you get to the prequels and everything. But apparently there's all sorts of stuff in the like books and comics that is going to like explain that all. Apparently there's stuff in the, uh, the Chuck Wendig books, which I haven't read, which is sort of indicating that the, uh, after the emperor had a contingency plan where all the Imperial forces were going to go out and leave the galaxy and then come back and Snoke, they hooked up with Snoke out there and he's some sort of alien from beyond the, uh, rim of the galaxy and, I'm sure that there's going to be 10 years worth of books and cartoons that's going to flesh all that out. And I could, I could really, I'm not too uh, enthusiastic about that. I, I, I wish there had just been like two lines in the movie uh, that had said where he came from. And I would have been happy with that. Yeah. Uh, and this ties into David. It sounds like you've been tracking the internet backlash to the last Jedi. Uh, this all ties into one of the big complaints, which is that this movie threw away the setup from The Force Awakens. Um, it took the mysteries like who is Rey's parents, who is Supreme Leader Snoke, and just said it doesn't matter. Uh, and I liked that. And I think that is the same complaint that people have about the Canto Bite storyline, where Finn and Rose go off and do a thing that doesn't matter. In order for a movie to say... Um, hey, this arc we just took you through is actually about how that arc is an illusion and it's not important. Like, it's not important who Ray's parents are. It's not important where Snoke came from. Uh, it's not actually important that they achieve anything on Kanto Bite. The point is that they don't. The movie still has to spend narrative capital on setting it up so it can then subvert it. And that leads to, especially between movies, kind of disappointment and broken expectations. Uh, the Force Awakens isn't ruined by the fact that the mystery of Rey turns out to be she's nobody. Uh, but if you spent a couple of years thinking, uh, you know, why did Kylo Ren say, what girl? And Maz Kanata ask Khan, who's the girl? Uh, now you go back and you know the answer is, I don't know. She's somebody. Um, but over two years, you can build up expectations. I will agree that not paying off Snoke is a little annoying. And I think some of that is Andy Serkis's fault. Um, I think the writers of The Last Jedi probably thought Snoke was a boring character who nobody would care about. But Andy Serkis really, I liked Snoke in this movie. I, I enjoyed him tossing Ray around and being an asshole. And I did, I wanted to know a little more about him. I even felt bad when he was killed. It was just so, had his gold bathrobe and it really seemed like he had a good thing going. Like, <laughs> I just felt that pain he must have felt for fucking up at the last minute. Uh, especially if he's this ancient creature from outside the galaxy. There's so many stories that could be told there. I don't want him to be done, but because he is. Well, but Seth, if you think about it, when Empire Strikes Back came out and there was the reveal that Vader was Luke's father, everyone's like, like bl mind blown, you know? And, um, and then they're like, oh, well, maybe uh, Ray is like, Ben's daughter or like whatever, like stupid crap like that. And it's, it's never going to Obi-Wan is, is sorry. Is, is Obi, yeah, it was, is Obi-Wan's daughter, granddaughter, whatever all the theories are, but the, it's never going to be the same, but it's, it's never going to like, you're never going to get the same impact by doing the same thing again. But if you think about it, this is like the, like Vader is Luke's father for this generation. It is like the, like everyone's mind was blown. It wasn't what people were predicting. It is uh, interesting in a in a new way uh i think in time people will be like oh yeah that was a pretty good that was a pretty good twist yeah and so much of it honestly just has to do with uh, you know people when they get really attached to a property they get a certain sense of entitlement about how the story needs to unfold and when expectations are dashed even in a way that ought to be pleasing because having your expectations dashed sometimes it is a lot of fun it's a good thing 
um, it can be disappointing. I think there's a difference between uh, feeling that, like there isn't enough payoff on the mystery of, of Ray's parentage or, or feeling like uh, Snoke got short shrift to something like, uh, you know, the, the scene with the, your, your intergalactic uh, Monte Carlo via Mos Eisley um, that that whole business, I still feel like that storyline uh, was a little underimagined, and I, I think you could have still achieved the same result, which is they go through all of this and they still fail, without it feeling so pointless. And I, I just think it was a little bit trivial, and they could have done better. I think Finn deserved, and Rose, who I really like that character, she deserved a bit better storyline. I thought they deserved a better storyline. I also think it undercut the tension because, you know, they're, the resistance is being chased and being shot at and they have time to go off and do this <laughs> little like escapade on the side. And to me, you know, it would have been better if, you know, they had to find somebody on board the ship and then they had to get aboard the Imperial ship and it was something connected to at least what they were doing. I understand why and there were other things that they threw in there, but it just felt, I don't know, a little... A little strange. Yeah, their their time management is puzzling, and maybe I I don't get it. But the, so they have however many hours of fuel it's supposed to be right at the beginning of the movie, but it's it's given in like double digits. It's like eighteen or twenty hours of fuel or something like this. But not only do do Finn and Rose have time to to visit other planets and and come back and all of that, um, you you have the scene at the end where they've got a battering ram pointed down their throat that is somehow related to star killer technology. Um, and they put out this desperate call for assistance to the galaxy. And they think what the, the fleets are going to arrive before the, the thing powers up the laser. I mean, I know that Imperial lasers take a really <laughs> long time to power up. There's all kinds of switches that need flipping and things that need to hum and light up. <laughs> and it, but even taking that into consideration, I don't see how they expected I, I just don't understand how movement works, I guess. But I did notice that Parsec was used as a measure of distance in this film, yeah. which I thought was funny. Yeah, that was good. I, I agree with everything you guys just said. All that stuff, I, I agree, is problematic for the film. But uh, I just want to say about and, and I could honest, I could have I could go I could do without the like CG racehorse alien things uh, that didn't do much for me. But I did really. Uh, but but the thing, Aaron, is that the, the their mission not only is not just pointless. It actually makes things much, much worse, right? Like they, yes. they go through all that just just to make things much worse, which I thought was actually kind of cool. But and that's that's fine. I just think they could have done a better job of arriving at that place. But I, I thought the, I mean, you you can argue about whether the Canto stuff was necessary or not. But I, I thought it was really interesting to have class consciousness sort of imported into the Star Wars movies in that way. And I really liked the the, the Benicio Del Toro character's name is DJ, I guess, although it's never really mentioned in the movie, I don't think. But the, the part where he says, like, oh, this ship was selling X-Wing fighters and TIE fighters. They're selling to, to you guys. And and just the line where he says, you know, oh, they blew you up next this time. Next time you'll blow them up. It, it doesn't matter in the long run. I just thought that, again, just with the moral complexity, it was just the... It's just all really interesting to me. and, and I, I liked that. I liked that I, a lot. It was very realistic. Sorry. Uh, um, but just to say, I also liked the echoes of that with the whole narrative about the Force. Is It's not about the seesaw. It's, it's, it's about the, the, the balancing point in the middle, if you see what I mean. It's, you know, you guys get your weapons and those guys get their weapons and you blow each other up. But at the end of the day, you're fooling yourselves if you think it's going one way or the other. See, I think 
I like to think, maybe this is wishful thinking, the movie ultimately painted Benicio Del Toro's character as a villain and his sort of moral equivalenting of the two sides as totally wrong. Uh, yeah, maybe some arms dealers sold X-Wings to the Resistance and TIE Fighters to the Republic, or sorry, to the First Order. By the way, the holograms on that ship had a TIE Interceptor, and I really wanted a TIE Interceptor to show up in this movie, <laughs> but it didn't. Uh, but I, I think he's totally incorrect. Well, wasn't, I this mean, arms... Kylo's Kyle, ship was pretty similar to a TIE Interceptor. That is a TIE Silencer, David. <laughs> a different model. Uh, I know this from the X-Wing Miniatures game, but I think Benicio Del Toro's character is wrong. It is disgustingly wrong. He's trying to say, you know, they're both kind of bad, man. The truth is in the middle. Who cares about the cycle of violence? But only one side builds super weapons that blows up tons of planets. Only one side is led by these sort of rotting dark side space liches who thrive on conflict. Yeah. Uh, an arms dealer who sells to both sides is doing a good thing and a really bad thing. He's not doing two bad things. Uh, and that, that, I think Benicio Del Toro was just rationalizing, playing both sides for profit. And I think that because he never gets a redeeming moment. He sells them out to the First Order and vanishes off screen. And the last we get of him is Finn firmly saying, you're wrong. wrong. And Finn knows a lot more about the First Order than DJ does. No, I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. It's funny. We came out of the theater. My brother's like, they even had Lando Calrissian. And I'm like, he's nothing like Lando (laughs) Calrissian. But no, I completely agree with that. But and I I don't think the film was trying to position that that worldview as correct. They were just trying to position it as a worldview. Yeah. And and one and one one that is widely held. And I I like that. I like that in in all my science fiction and epic fantasy drives me bananas when everybody has the same worldview. Right. And I wasn't saying, Seth, that DJ is right. I was just saying it was interesting to have it happen in a Star Wars movie that you find out that the resistance is being supplied by scuzzy arms dealers, because yeah. I, I feel like that wasn't it, that's not a typical thing that that you would ever be mentioned in a Star Wars movie. Yeah. Although I will say in the originals, mostly in the expanded universe, a big detail was that a lot of their ships and pilots came from the Empire, from defectors like design teams and pilots that defected. Totally irrelevant, though. You can edit that out. Uh, <laughs> I will say one last thing for me about Canto Bite. If I were in charge of editing this movie script, I would have had a fight with Ryan Johnson where I said, look, uh, just put the Slicer DJ on another ship in the Rebel fleet, and maybe it's like running out of fuel and really badly damaged, and Rose and Finn have to sneak over there and find him and bribe him to do the thing, to go onto the Supremacy and hack the stuff. And all you lose with that is... They can't go to Canto Bight and see the Galactic 1%. And I think Ryan Johnson just really wanted to be like, these are the real villains, the oppressors of the proletariat. And we got to set them free like these friendly vertical cliff climbing space horses. Okay, wait, but Seth, the, th- the other thing you lose, though, is the ending with the kids rising up because if yeah. you've never gone to cancel you've never seen the um the oppressed i mean you need the oppressed proletariat for the ending of the story as they've conceived it that's true i just don't like kids <laughs> <laughs> plus that you wouldn't have had your most eisley moment which you need to have i was right? not impressed by the aliens in the backgrounds it looked like a lot yeah. of work went into them but i mean I mostly know. they were they were human except for the 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 french squid guy <laughs> uh, right at the beginning on the yacht, which which I thought, and you know, I liked the space cat goat things, goat horses. I, they, I couldn't tell if they were predator or prey species, but it's fine. Do you guys like porgs? 
I, I like porgs. I liked them. I don't I care about porgs. I don't understand why. Why the the? I think people just sometimes just need something to get upset about. <laughs> I would not honestly. Have... They just don't matter enough in the movie to have an opinion one way or the other. That's that as visceral as some of the stuff that that you're seeing. Well, I feel like in the prequels, the porgs would have there would have been like a ten minute sequence where a porg was running around throwing grenades, dropping grenades. Things <laughs> or something. And I like that they're just like he's in a shot, and then that's it. There's not a huge like stupid long sequence involving it. No, yeah, that's right. Um, but but Raj, do you want to? Do you have anything you want to add? Uh, not to that part, I guess. <laughs> do you have anything you want to add to any part? Um, I guess just I mean overall, you know, there are three main storylines we just talked about. Canto uh, bite that didn't really do much for me, and also, in all like honesty, I had to run out of the theater for a few minutes to use the restroom, so I missed that sequence and just came back for the for the animals being freed from the stable. But I didn't think I met, missed anything um, worthwhile. But the the weird thing for me was that there was a huge um, imbalance for me because I loved all of the Luke and the force and Ray and Kylo and the planet there and all of the stuff that revolved around that so much. And I kind of almost got bored by the resistance storyline. And I don't know if part of that was because it went on for too long or, you know, because it just was that bunch of their ships getting blown up, which I don't know. Like I felt like it should have made me feel more. And instead I was just like, Oh no, I'm not, I have to watch more ships getting blown up. Um, and it's weird because you brought up, for example, the emperor and the, the original series versus Snoke. And they both aren't told the resistance and the rebellion. There's not a lot of like background given on either of them, but I've never really felt connected even the force awakens to the resistance at all. And I'm really not sure why that is and because you know again we even have familiar faces like leia to kind of ground us in the resistance but i think this conflict that that kind of was brewed up just doesn't have the power of the original because it feels so derivative of the original and so you know yeah i actually i got to the end after the resistance was pretty much all but wiped out and i was like Oh, well, sucks. You know, like I, I didn't really feel this huge sense of defeat or anything like that. And I wanted to, to see more of the Luke um, and Kylo stuff. Um, I was kind of hoping that Lando would pop out of hyperspace with some kind of like <laughs> ragtag fleet to help like save them. Um, because they talked about the outer rim. I'm like, who would be out there that we would know? Oh, maybe Lando. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Although I do like, I, I felt like as a movie of positioning, I'm interested to see where they go from here because they they've cleared a lot of the pieces off the board and they've set up a they've set up a more open field for maybe even doing away with this kind of first order resistance thing um, and maybe trying something different. So well, let I guess me, we'll see. Let me go back actually to the thing like that I wanted to respond to with Aaron because like what like you're saying, Rush, I think the reason that the resistance feels so substanceless is because it, it 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 doesn't have a real history. I mean, like Aaron was saying that, yeah, like it's very rare for um, you know democratic movements to then everything's awesome afterward. But I feel like what should have happened is you know you have the French Re- you know you have the Louis the Sixteenth and you have the French Revolution and that descends into the Terror. And these movies should have been the Terror. They should have been the the rebellion goes bad rather than just like oh like okay Louis the Seventeenth is now back and everything's exactly the way it was before the French Revolution which just just feels so false and so contrived 
Yeah, exactly. And and I think you you put your finger on something, both of you there, because uh, the I mean, Leah gives the speech about the spark of, of the of the resistance having gone out and people not believing anymore. And that kind of goes for us too, in a certain sense, because it doesn't have this anchoring and, you know, whether it would have, I don't know that it would have been very satisfying to have the the new order that the rebellion establishes turn into the terror and be something awful, but it could have been something much more benign, like factions that came together to overcome a mutual enemy were no longer able to hold it together because they had competing visions of, of the, the political yeah. order or the future, whatever it is. Um, you know, it, it can still be a bunch of good people fail to come together in some way um, to, to establish a coherent vision for the future. But, but we don't see that. Instead, what we see is this alien who I just, I, I, Snoke is a bit of a letdown for me from, from start to finish. He just feels like Palpatine regurgitated um, but without the backstory. And so he kind of appears out of nowhere and suddenly everything's wrong again. And, and, and so somehow Luke's either, it would have made more sense to Luke going off to become a, a cranky hermit. If he were not only somehow indirectly responsible for the, the downfall of Ben Solo but somehow that piece of the reestablishment of the Jedi Order is somehow connected to tipping the scales, and tipping the scales is is what creates that imbalance that that brings the dark side into ascension again. And they he kind of implies that the Jedi have done that in the past, without implying that the Jedi have done that this time around. So you don't really get a sense of how we got from there to here. For all that we do, these callbacks to the previous series, there is this missing space between both for the dark side and the light side, how did we get to this point that that makes it harder for us, I guess, to buy into that central conflict? And we buy into much more than the character conflict. See, I feel that's good. I feel like it would be really good if the Jedi had become sort of like the Praetorian Guard where they have the real power, they're really calling the shots, they're deciding who the leaders are, whatever the political process is. And that would maybe explain more why Luke's like, we don't want any more Jedi because they're too powerful and then they can whatever whatever fictions we create if you have superpowered people running around they're always going to be the ones ruling over the non-superpowered people yeah uh, and it would explain why the that that republic that was established disintegrated a second time i uh just on the micro level uh, i think my fix for rajan's problem of the resistance uh not really tugging on your heartstrings this movie would did you guys um do you know of, or did you see the YouTube video about how Star Wars was saved in the edit, in the editing room? I mean, uh, I, I, was, I didn't see that video, but I know I've read books about that process. Yeah. The most astonishing specific I learned from that video is that in the original assembly cut of Star Wars, uh, the Death Star is not about to destroy the rebel base at the end. Um, they just go out there and blow it up while it's kind of hanging out and chilling. And the tension of the Death Star coming around Yavin and... Uh, targeting the rebel base and being about to destroy it is totally added by voiceovers over random shots and uh, reused footage of um, Tarkin from earlier in the movie. Uh, hmm. There is no scripted material in the original script to support that. What I would have done with the resistance in this movie, same thing, just added voiceovers during the space shots where the ships are getting blown up, where they're continuously calling for help from Republic worlds, old allies, and no one's answering. Um, and that sense that they were basically the Republic's proxy army against the, uh, the First Order. 
that they were sort of Leia's little fighting club who'd been sent to do what the Republic didn't want to do. And now they've been totally abandoned, I think would have given them a little pathos. Would have helped you feel rage against all the, uh, I don't know, the people out there who'd rather just give up and surrender to the First Order. To me, that would have been my fix. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, David, it sounds like you're wrapping things up. There was one more thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, we, I mean, we, got... we've got about 20 minutes of time if you want, if that, w- that we can use if we want. My thing's really nerdy, so I'll let everybody else, if you got anything. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, well, Sorry. So, so, so some nerdy stuff? I don't know if we, I don't know if we want yeah. to have any nerdy stuff on this podcast. It's, it's next level. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let me say, I'll, I'll mention something that's a little, maybe a little less nerdy that I wanted to mention is just, I, I loved the visuals in this movie so much. I loved Snoke's throne room. I thought it was just, I, don't, I, I, I was reading an article about how it was inspired by like samurai movies and things like that. I don't know the details, but I, I really thought it was striking. And just the, um, the, the, the salt planet crate where you disturb the surface and it's red, like sort of blood red underneath. Uh, I just thought there was just a lot of really striking visuals that I'd never seen before um, in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I agree yeah. too. I think yeah. the biggest difference... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and, and my, my girlfriend wants me to mention that in the scene where there's the um, force ghost or whatever of Luke Skywalker, that you can see that he's not disturbing the salt when he steps. And yeah. uh, and she noted that at the time. And uh, I, I think that's a pretty cool detail. Uh, I think the biggest difference between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, aside from the script, is that if you just take still frames from the movie, every shot in Empire is gorgeously composed. And Return of the Jedi kind of looks cheap and uninteresting. Um, there's a uh, critical sequence in Return of the Jedi where Luke surrenders to Vader and Vader is walking with him to the ship that's going to take him up to the Emperor. And Luke's like, hey, Dad, don't take me to the Emperor. I know you're still my dad. Uh, we can we can work this out. Uh, and the set they're on and the lighting is so bad. It could be like an industrial hallway in a warehouse. It's terrible. Uh, so the fact that this movie looks so good, especially after Force Awakens, which is very good looking, but very Abrams. Uh, I was just really glad to see some cool new cinematography and great set designs and stuff. The only part I didn't like was the um, the fight that there was some CGI that was on the um, Imperial ship where Finn and, you know, right around the time where Finn and Phasma are fighting and then they're on that walker that that gets them to the ship. Yeah. There was some CGI over that that looked a little like wonky to me. And I don't know if that's just maybe I'm just not. I'm never really too thrilled with CGI like that, but um, I, I but everything else that. I think it was, it was pretty obvious green screen yeah. kind of stuff there. Yeah, I think the worst offender for on that for me was the the scene where they're busting out um, on the horse goat cats uh, <laughs> and those things. I don't know what they have on their hooves or claws or whatever they have for feet, but boy, they can bounce off all <laughs> sorts of metal and glass and hot things and sharp things. And not, not even take any real impact in their muscles, let alone hurt their feet. <laughs> so it was a little bit weird to see. It was all very smooth. You didn't kind of have a sense of that these creatures were doing anything weird, leaping yeah, off it, space, spacecraft and walls the way they were. That looks very prequels. Yeah. Actually, let me mention, so um, I did kind of like the moment where uh, Haldo 
light speeds her way through the um, ship. But that's my thing. But it doesn't it raise Seth very obvious questions of why all naval yes. battles in the Star Wars universe don't involve kamikaze hyperspace ships. Yeah, it that's does. what I wanted to talk about. Like, including oh, that... why she didn't do it earlier, why she right. stood at the window for so long. <laughs> Presumably, we have to assume just from the evidence given on screen that this is somehow very hard to do, but it it didn't seem like it. And what she did there, which was maybe the most like astonishing shot in the movie, it just my theater went absolutely crazy. You were there too, actually, David. <laughs> yeah. By crazy, by crazy, I mean there was this sort of odd hush. Uh, not that they weren't very polite and quiet anyway, but somehow the silence was different. But yeah, when she light speeds her cruiser through the supremacy, which is this massive, unkillable thing, it pretty much fucks it up. Uh, it just retroactively destroys all of Star Wars uh, in a really basic way. Like the Death Star is no longer a valuable thing. You can do that with any ship you want. Just hyperspace it into a planet. The planet will never be habitable again. Uh, And uh, it was such a cool scene. But I I haven't rationalized a way in my head to make it make any sense. Well, it's interesting because there's, I believe that one of the ships that gets blown up is a, a, I guess they're calling them hammerhead ships, um, which... I believe so. I, I haven't gotten confirmation, but we, the idea is there. one of them was using Rogue One where it slams into that Star Destroyer and actually pushes the one Star Destroyer into another Star Destroyer. So if you have ships like that, like even if you're not going to hyperspace into them, like why not, you know, just fire them off all at this ship to just slow it down or cause some damage, something like that. It felt like it was like a... Um, I don't know. It, it it felt like a last resort that they should have thought about before. And, you know, it seemed like they weren't using all the tools at their disposal to at least harry the people that were chasing them down. I got an answer for that one, which is that the hammerhead gambit in Rogue One only works after the Star Destroyer gets its shields taken down and hit with ion torpedoes. So it's kind of disabled and can't, uh, can't thrust back. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked. Okay, that is a good point. Is there uh, any way to save? Is there any way to save that, Seth? The 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 uh, Haldo maneuver, like to rationalize ways she could only do it here and yeah. it wouldn't be done all the time. Yeah. The biggest rationale would be that it's normally not worth it to sacrifice one of your capital ships to kill an enemy capital ship because both of you have lots more of each, so it's not decisive. But if you can do it with a giant clumsy star cruiser, you can do it with something the size of an X-wing, and if it's if it's going at near light speed, it's probably going to fuck the target up anyway. I guess the only save I would have is due to some property of hyperspace. It is not effective to ram the target unless it is very, very large. And the rammer, the one doing the ram, is also pretty massive. Like maybe uh, an X-Wing or something the size of the Millennium Falcon would just have spattered off the supremacy. Um, that's all I can think of. The only fix that that I could think of, and I think it's a plausible enough one, um, would be that the trajectory that you're plotting in hyperspace is not exact enough. So the odds of you actually ramming through a specific target that's so infinitesimally tiny in comparison to the the parameters that you're plotting are astronomical. So it's a total Hail Mary pass, and the odds of you actually hitting anything between you and what you're hyperspace jumping to are just so small that it's not worth making that Hail Mary pass. Yes. So maybe you need Princess Leia using the Force to aim it 
Sort of like <laughs> Luke uses the force to blow up the Death Star and it's a one in a million shot. Exactly. The problem there is, though, I totally buy that for why only the supremacy, this giant flying wing, was a good target. But it can still hyperspace ships into planets. Maybe that's just not civilized, not decent. Maybe the atmosphere burns the ship up before it can hit. Yeah, yeah, let's <laughs> go with that. <laughs> Otherwise, I like it. <laughs> Did you guys notice... Uh, I always love paying attention to the really little details of um, the CGI and the space combat scenes just to see if some super nerd has like added interesting stuff. I think this was the first Star Wars where you actually see shields doing anything for right. most of the movie, aside yeah. from like the droids in episode one and stuff. But uh, also the turbo laser bolts from the supremacy would kind of like drop or guide in on the, the transport ships. Um, and either there's like space gravity pulling them down or there's some sort of guidance system. I thought that was neat. I was struck once again by the fact that there's obviously no workers compensation in the first order or the galactic <laughs> empire previous to that, because the death traps they have inside their, whether it's their destroyers or their, uh, Death Stars or what have you, that we're always having to jump across these giant chasms that appear to go 6,000 feet down. It's like, why are those there? <laughs> How about you just build a floor? <laughs> we're not cheap. concerned about employee safety. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, speaking of, we uh, that's how ha Captain Phasma meets her doom falling off some giant thing. And I, I feel like, I guess this is another one of my complaints about this movie is that I feel like the Captain Phasma, and Force Awakens for that matter, I, I feel like Captain Phasma was pretty cool uh, visually and in design and everything and just did nothing in either of these movies. Uh, I thought the character design deserved some something cooler to do than, than that character ever got to do. Yeah, I agree. But I think, you know, in the same way that Snoke, you mentioned, you know, there's already a book out about Phasma. I think there's a comic coming out about Phasma. So it seems like Disney, one approach they have with these characters is, oh, don't worry. If you want to find out their their deal, you can read about it. But I mean, I was expecting in this movie for her to do something spectacular uh, and she doesn't. And I also felt that I don't know. I felt like they were trying to say like, look, Finn and, you know, Phasma are facing off, but they, they had a very, they had very limited time together in the, in the past anyway. And I didn't really feel like it was that big a like rivalry or, you know, enemy situation. So it didn't really do that much for me. Well, and, and then there was like where Finn says, bring it Chrome Dome or something like that. Like, oh, I hate that shit so much. Like, yeah, I didn't like it. That out. I got to fix her all this, um, which helps another plot thread too. They should have taken Phasma off the supremacy, cut that entire stupid sequence where they're fighting with the ATSTs and escaping in a shuttle. Because um, I never for one moment believed Rose and Finn were in danger. Uh, and have Phasma be on vacation on Kanto Bike. So Finn and Rose show up there and they're like, who's that? That tall Gwendolyn Christie looking lady. <laughs> and Finn's like, oh shit, it's Captain Phasma. And she's, I don't know, maybe she got kicked out of the First Order for letting Starkiller base get blown up. And she recognizes Finn. And then you could actually let Gwendolyn Christie act, give her a little more screen time, do something more with Canto Bite. Hire me, Disney. Yeah, I like, <laughs> I, I like that, Seth. That's good. I like that. So I have a question for you guys, if that's okay. So at the end of this movie, the resistance is pretty much reduced to, you know, a handful of people, relatively. Um the flagship of the First Order 
has been destroyed as, uh, along with the Supreme Leader. Uh, although obviously Ray is still around with a bunch of other people. I mean, Kylo Ren, that's what I meant, not Ray. Um, what do you think? Do you think that'll have any kind of effect on the next movie? Where do you think it'll pick up in terms of, you know, galactic situations? Do you think the first order will be severely damaged or do you think it'll be fine? Kylo Ren will be building Starkiller Base 2. Oh, no. And no. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of hope they jump forward in time quite a bit. Yeah. Like, the Rebels have to lay low and allow themselves to replenish, excuse me, the resistance a little bit. Um, Kylo Ren has a chance to twist his mustache and figure out how he wants to reorganize everything. Um, uh, maybe that helps us get out of the, the situation they're in with Leia, because I still don't know how they're going to deal with that. Um, because if you jump forward enough in time, you know, maybe something's happened in the interim. Um, it would be It would be interesting to see that that happen. What I hope we don't get is a lot of CGI force projections of, of Luke hovering over Kylo Ren's shoulder, calling him names. I hope you know. we get that. I Do want you? that so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kind of with Seth on this one, I, but I, I agree with you, Aaron, that if they jump, I don't know, 10 years in the future or something, the movie could just open with the characters at Leia's funeral and it would just, you know, exactly. It would not seem as, you know, it, it would just, it would kind of flow more naturally. I think that's an interesting point because I was wondering, I, I mean, I know the movie is a lot about subverting expectations. And so I think everyone thought, oh, Leia, she got blown into space. This is how they're writing her out of the, the movie. And then she comes back and then she comes completely back. Um, and I was a little surprised by that. And I wasn't sure if that was just them doing that to fuck with us. Um be like, oh, you expected it to be like this, right? Nope, sorry. But they could have easily had Leia die in in that kind of fashion, perhaps not, you know, elegantly. And then they had the Holdo character that could have kind of stepped into that role and taken on moving it forward. So it felt like more of a deliberate, like, fucking with the with the viewer than actually something good for the story well, the, does that no, make sense I, I, see i think if they had known that carrie fisher was not going to live to see the next movie that they would have had um leia be the haldo person because like haldo you don't you, the only reason you need haldo at all is to like hyperspace into the ship at the end and that would be a perfect ending for a perfect death for leia if she had been the one to do that um but i think they needed but they, they could have they had enough time surely and and enough existing footage to make that happen don't you think between that and, and CGI technology to fill in any blanks that they've been using so egregiously on oh, <laughs> on other Star Wars films. Like, I feel, I, I think it's interesting and I, and I agree. Like, it seems like that would have been an easy solution for them to have just said, okay, well, this isn't how we plan to take it forward. But since Carrie Fisher has passed away, um, the, the near death experiences that we had planned for this film are going to need to turn into actual death experience um, and, and done it that way. And it, it is interesting that they didn't. Um, I think it would have been sad if, if Leia and Luke didn't have one more moment together. Yeah. But I think it would have also been interesting if Han and Leia had both died before Luke came back. And then it was like, oh God, I better, you know, like he would have felt Leia dying. And then maybe that, I don't know, I don't know, whatever. But if it, starting out in the next movie with, her funeral would be, I think, a really nice way of, of handling it. Speaking of, uh, I 
before my tiny mind forgets. Uh, we were talking earlier about how this movie has a lot of great roles for women. No, I think barely passes the Bechdel test, but the scene where it passes is that great conversation between Holdo and Leia, where Leia's leaving with the transports and uh, she gets to say goodbye to Holdo. And, you know, they both try to say, may the force be with you. Uh, apparently Carrie Fisher wrote that scene. Um, oh, wow. It was not originally in the script, but she's such a good script doctor that she was like, this needs something more. Uh, and she and Laura Dern worked that scene out between themselves. So not just uh, good women in the movie, but good women writing it. It's mm, great. All right, cool. So, yeah, so, okay, so, Seth, now we're pretty much out of time. So, um, I don't know, does anyone have any final thoughts or anything before I wrap this up? Not for me. I guess, yeah. Uh, I also thought the movie was, like, overstuffed, poorly edited, and all sorts of crazy shit. But the fact that we were able to talk for 90 minutes about its themes and questions it raises, for me, solidly makes it a, a very good Star Wars. Yeah, because if you're a regular listener, I mean, we usually try to go through the movies and kind of out, lay out the plot and do it chronologically. But with this movie, I was just like, there's not time for that. There's just so much other things we need to talk about with the themes and the characters and the Star Wars universe and everything that we just got to just go at it. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying there, Seth. The last thing I want to say is that I really enjoyed seeing Yoda again. I was really happy <laughs> to see, like, like the good Yoda, too, not the, like, you know, the puppet CGI. Yoda. Yeah, 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 yeah puppet actual Yoda. puppet Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe very happy. Yeah. Right, I think that's a good note to end on, Puppet Yoda. So we've been speaking with Rajan Khanna, Aaron Lindsay, and Seth Dickinson. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Rajan Khanna, Aaron Lindsay, and Seth Dickinson for joining us on the show. Special thanks as well to everyone who signed up recently to support us on Patreon, including Willis Johnson, James Camborn, C. Mosher, Will White, David Halbrook, Master Hare, Patty Elizabeth, M.L. Hunt, Selby Miller, Jao Duarte, Rich Dana, Janice Jeske, Anthony Ha, Eric Kratzer, David Anderson, and John. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to thank the following people who recently signed up to make monthly payments via PayPal. John Delaney, Rural Lucian, Charles Muller, Robert Kerwood, Andrew Mamel, Zach Chapman, Benjamin Butala, David Ossoff, William Warren, William Gosling, Elizabeth Lee, Allison Boyce, Trevor Nemeth, Matthew Dawson, William Marsden, Jason Pearson, and Eric Haven. I also want to thank everyone who recently gave us large or first-time payments via PayPal, including Seth Karras, Krister Wester, Catherine Fulfer, Sam Franklin, Annika Felkegaard, Tiffany Peng, Ovaldis Miliauskas, Adam Forster, Andrew Seuss, Sven Minning, Theodore Vishen, Michael Duda, Paresh Desai, Jason Enberg, Monit Singh, and Kathleen Arbuckle. The situation this month with Patreon caused a lot of chaos, so I'm sorry if I missed anyone. If I didn't mention your name, please email me at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com and let me know. I also just want to say thank you again to everyone who stuck with us this month and continue to support us via Patreon and PayPal. There isn't time right now to read 200 names, 
But every contribution is greatly appreciated, and Geek's Guide to the Galaxy wouldn't be possible without all of you. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.